was sitting in a pew and a man named Alan Figgy came up and invited me and my older sister to the church's youth group. And I will never forget at 13, thinking no one has ever welcomed me like that. No one has ever gone up to me and said, I see you. Being a member of the welcome team and seeing their dedication and their passion for the church and for the people of Mount Pleasant is invigorating. Good morning, church. Thanks for being here today. It's good to see all of you. I want to give a special welcome to everyone who's joining us online, and also I want to give a special welcome to anyone who might be a guest with us this weekend. What a great, great joy it is to welcome you into our service. If you've got a Bible with you, let me hear your pages turning to the New Testament book of James, and when you get to James, find chapter 2. We're going to spend some time in James chapter 2 this morning. i got to tell you that when I saw that Grace Marriage video for the first time last night, it kind of pierced my heart a little bit. Am I alone in that today? I think about it from the perspective of being the shepherd of all of the folks here in this church, which includes being the shepherd of all of the marriages in this church, and that kind of pierced my heart a little bit because we live in a fast-paced, busy world, and we live in a world where a lot of good things, convenient things, modern things can have a negative impact on our lives at times if we don't make sure that we keep our guard up and pay attention to what we're doing. So I hope that that Grace Marriage video uh, maybe spoke to your heart and as you see the opportunities for Grace Marriage ministry come along that you will find the time to be involved in some of those things. We are in a special New Year's message series called Love Your Church, and what we're doing is we're talking about seven different responsibilities related to being a part of the local church. As I've told you each week, this message series comes from a book that I read last year in 2023 by the same name, Love Your Church, written by a guy named Tony Merida. And I picked it up and read it, and it had such an impact on me, I thought it would be a good way to kick off our 2024 preaching calendar. And here's one of the things I love the most about this book. When it talks about loving your church, it's not talking about just having a certain kind of an attitude or emotion or feeling about your church. It's talking about an attitude that's accompanied by action or actions. And there's a critical distinction between the two. It's easy to feel a sense of love for someone or something, but really never do anything about it. But real genuine love is demonstrated by what we do. It makes me think of this verse from the book of James, uh, James chapter two, in fact, verse 26. We won't be looking at this verse in our text today, but James chapter two and verse 26 says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So God is telling us that you can say that you have faith, but you really demonstrate the reality of your faith in the actions of your life. Well, it's the same way in principle. It's the same way with love. We can talk about loving someone or loving something, but that needs to be seen in the way we live our life. So we're not talking about, uh, we're not spending seven weeks rather talking about the attitude of loving our church. We're talking about the actions that need to flow out of that attitude of love for our church. And I told you in our first message that while Love Your Church talks about responsibilities related to being a part of a local church, we're viewing them as privileges because that is really what they are. In the first two weeks of the series, we talked about the privilege of belonging to a local church, 
Then last week we came together and we talked about the privilege of gathering together as a local church last week when weather caused us to have the smallest gathering that we've had in a long time. We talked about the privilege of gathering together as a local church. Um, we, we just need to understand this reality of, of the local church. Our our attitude and our actions related to the local church really, really make a difference in our lives and in the life of the church together. We live in a culture where it's becoming more and more common for people to say something like, I'm a Christian, but I'm not involved in the local church. They say they're a Christian, but they have absolutely no participation in any local church. They think of it like this. They say, I'm a Christian, but I don't belong and I don't gather anywhere with anyone else. Some people will even go so far as to say, you don't need to be a part of a local church to be a Christian. But here's the bottom line. That is an attitude or belief that simply cannot be backed up by the scriptures. If you care about what the Bible says about your life, you care about what the word of God says about your life, then you have to understand that the Bible does not back up this belief that you can be a Christian without having any need for participation in any local church. We talked about that a little bit last week. And I mentioned just some, some specific ways that uh, the Bible teaches us how, that it's important to gather together as a church. It's a biblical command. We talked about that. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. A better translation would be, let us not neglect, like it's a specific choice that we make. Let us not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. And so I'm encouraging you through this message series to make sure that you understand the importance of the local church in your life. Uh, we talked about how we gather together to be equipped. And last week I used a passage of scripture from Ephesians chapter four, specifically verses 11 through 13, that talks about how God uses different spiritual appointments and different spiritual gifts like prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to prepare people for works of service, to build up the members of the body, to create unity and help us all become mature in Christ. It's also something we see over and over again uh, in the churches that are written about in the book of Acts. Uh, last week, our text for our message was Acts chapter 20, and we talked about a visit Paul was making to a specific church. It was the church in Troas. And when we look at it, what did we see Paul doing at that church when he visited there? We see him preaching and teaching. Is the church the only place where you can experience preaching and teaching? No. But as you read about the church in the New Testament, you see this clear mission to both proclaim and preserve the message of God in the body of the local church. That's what happens when we meet together. We talked about how when we gather together as a local church, we are able to practice the one another instructions of the New Testament, and there's so many of them, some 59 different one another instructions, love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, and you can go on and on and on. We can certainly do that outside the church, but it's so much easier to do, and there's so much more life to it when we do it in this communal setting where we're all together for the same purpose. And there are other things that the New Testament teaches us about the importance of gathering for worship. There's the increased awareness that we have of the presence of God when we're in a setting like this. There's the joy and blessing of being together with people that we love. I look across this room and I see people that I love and I care about and I'm 
thankful for the opportunity we have to be together. There's, there's significance in corporate worship. There's the relational nature of the, of the, of the fruit of the Spirit. The, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5 about the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit wants to produce inside of us as we grow in our faith, and it's described as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we are together, we have the ability to really exercise and practices though practice rather those gifts it's similar to being together so we can practice the one another instructions of the new testament the bottom line is this the new testament by precept which is direct instruction and by principle which is implied instruction teach us that belonging to a local church and gathering as a part of the church are clearly the will of god for every single believer now you can argue till you're blue in the face that it's not important but the bible says that it is well, this weekend, as we continue in this study, we're gonna take what really can only be viewed as the next logical step in this process or this progression of loving your church. Because if we're gonna talk about the importance of belonging to a local church, and we're gonna talk about the importance of gathering together as a local church, we also need to talk about the importance of welcoming others, welcoming everyone into the local church. So that's our topic for this weekend. But before we really dive into that, let me just ask a simple, honest, straightforward question for all of us to consider. Do we really want to be a welcoming church? And the reason why I ask that question is because being a truly welcoming church is gonna require a lot from all of us because the church needs to be a place where anyone and everyone is welcome. The doors need to be open to anyone and everyone, no matter who they are or what their story is. That means the church is a place where we all bring our sin and we bring our struggles and we bring our imperfections and we bring our insecurities and you can go on and on and on. And while the local church is a place where we can ultimately find the complete life change that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus, that life change doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. And for most of us, regardless of how long we've been Christians, if we're honest, we would have to say that there are still things, there are still aspects of that life change that we struggle with on a daily basis. And those things don't always reflect the best when it comes to our faith and our Christian character. Back in 2023, one of the message series that we looked at as a church was a chapter-by-chapter -chapter study of the New Testament book of Romans, and we called that study Unashamed. Look at this verse on the screen from Romans chapter 15 and verse 7. Paul writes and says, well, in fact, read it with me. Let me hear your voices. Here we go. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another Paul says, as Christ, let's think about the significance of this, as Christ has welcomed you. Now, Paul wrote those words to a church in Rome that was filled with Jewish believers, Jewish converts to Christianity, and Gentile believers. And the problem was they weren't welcoming one another the way Christ had called them to welcome one another. 
They were letting the social issues and the religious issues and previous faith issues get in the way of really becoming one, of really welcoming one another and seeing one another as brothers and sisters, genuinely as brothers and sisters in Christ who were one in Christ. And so this reality that that being a welcoming church is a struggle has been around for a really long time. So that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about together this morning, this reality that part of loving your church is a commitment to be a welcoming church. And that brings us to James chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible open there and you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Scriptures. Now, I had cataract surgery on Monday and Tuesday, so I can see really clearly. (laughs) My only problem is every time I go in the bathroom and look in the mirror, I go, ah! Who is that? (laughs) But I still need these readers for close up. Here we go. James chapter two, we're gonna read the first nine verses. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing his word. If you're familiar at all with the book of James, you know that one of the distinguishing features of the book of James is its practicality, how practical it is. That means a lot of the instruction that we find in the book of James can be put into practice in a real world way right away. And we see that in this text. One of the realities of belonging to something in the world, now we're not talking about the church, one of the realities of belonging to something in the world is that there are always gonna be people on the outside who are looking in. And in the world, that's okay, because in the world there are things that are by nature or just become exclusive. In fact, can you think of something? Can you think of anything in your life or your experience of life that you were a part of that was really, really enjoyable to you when there weren't that, uh, that many other people who were a part of it, when there weren't that many other participants, but it's less enjoyable now because there are so many more people who wanna be involved. There's a certain golf course that Sandy and I love to play in Indianapolis. We've been playing this golf course for years and years and years, and for most of the time, it was relatively unknown, and so we loved it. There are so many times we would be out there and there would literally be no one within eyesight of where we were on the golf course. And I never worried about calling and making a tee time because I knew because it was so unknown and flying under the radar that we could pretty much show up anytime we wanted to and we could get right to the first tee and begin our round of golf. But things have changed. Fast forward and things have changed. 
And now, because some people are stupid and they talk about the golf course in public to other people, <laughs> I didn't really mean that. Uh, news of this golf course and what a gem it is has gotten out. And you add to that the fact that for whatever crazy reason, COVID drove so many people to the golf course, it's not nearly as fun as it used to be. Now we still play there a lot and we still love the golf course. We love the people that run the golf course. And we go there, probably play there more than any place else. But, you know, we go and we have to make a tea time and we have to wait and we have to wait and we have to wait when we play golf. And it's just not like it used to be. It's all been changed. And I don't really like that. I don't love that about this golf course. Can you think of something like that in your life? Maybe it's a restaurant that you love to go to, but you know, and it kind of flew under the radar and you would go there and you didn't have to worry about it being crowded. You could, you didn't have to make a reservation. You could just show up and you could just really enjoy it and really enjoy the people that ran it. But now it's different. Maybe it was a vacation spot. You know, this place that you love to go for peace and quiet, but now all these other knuckleheads are ruining it for you every time you try to go. Well, there's nothing particularly wrong about me feeling that way about this golf course. I mean, I'm thankful that the golf course is making money, uh, printing money actually, making money and doing really well and giving the assurance that it's gonna be around for uh, the future. But it's really nothing wrong with me feeling, you know, like I wish there weren't so many people that were here, but it would be really wrong to feel that way about church. And you would think that, that that's so crazy. Nobody would ever feel that way, but you would be wrong. Any church that's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will pursue and welcome everyone, as many as possible, no matter how different they might be from the people who are already there. I mean, what was it that got Jesus so crossways with the religious leaders during his ministry? What do you see about Jesus and the conflict that he had with the religious leaders over and over again in the Gospels? It was the fact that Jesus welcomed anyone how many times do you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and you read something like this? Jesus was with tax collectors and other sinners. He was having dinner with tax collectors and other sinners. And on the outside looking in were the religious leaders just beside themselves that somebody would call themselves a rabbi or a teacher and claim to be from God and spend time with people like that. But this is the very nature of the heart of Jesus, which should be the heart of the church as well. Any church built on the foundation of Jesus as Savior and Lord will pursue and welcome anyone and everyone, no matter how different they might be. One of the most significant changes that I have seen take place in the local church over the last 40 plus years is the rise of multi-site churches. And I'm sure you know what that means. A multi-site church is a church that, that expands to have multiple campuses in different locations. When I, I did a little bit of research, when I moved here to Greenwood in 2001, there were only about 200 multi-site churches in the United States. By 2014, there were over 8,000 multi-site churches. And the number has continued to grow so exponentially that it's hard to even pinpoint the number of how many there are today in 2024. We're a multi-site church. We have other campuses in other locations. We just approach it a little bit different than 
most people do. And I'm not saying that because our way is better or I'm critical of other ways. It's just a part of the DNA of who we are. We just approach it a little bit differently. Rather than just reproduce what happens here in Greenwood, in other upper middle class suburban areas around Indianapolis where people can come and get the same experience but have to watch whoever's preaching on a video screen instead of having a live preacher, what we do is we've looked around the city of Indianapolis for neighborhoods and communities where there's a lot of need. A lot of times where there are, there's a lot of poverty and uh, a lot of struggle and a lot of um, uh, crime and issues like that. And once we locate the neighborhood, we either go in there and place a church, plant a church, or we acquire, we have acquired declining churches in those neighborhoods so that we can restart them. And the whole focus is on, on bringing life to those neighborhoods and those communities and those people through the ministries of these local churches. We want to make a spiritual impact. That's the first priority. But oftentimes what we have discovered is that it's by making a physical impact in people's lives that the door opens to make a spiritual impact in their lives. And so we call these impact campuses, impact Old Southside Christian Church, which is down the Old Southside neighborhood, which is a neighborhood we identified and then we planted a church in there. Impact Fairfax Christian Church were uh, a rough neighborhood, a really rough neighborhood where there was a declining church that we acquired and restarted. Impact Bethany Christian Church, similar. And the newest addition just in the last few months has been Impact Claremont Christian Church. And here's why I bring that up. One of the things in being involved in this whole thing from the beginning, one of the things that I have learned about uh, the churches that we have acquired in particular is that most, not, not all of them completely, but most of them, they began to decline in those neighborhoods and communities when they stopped welcoming their neighbors into the church. And this is especially true, it's magnified in these neighborhoods because over time, the demographic of the neighborhood changed. Or in other words, who it was that was living around the church began to change. And what happened is when the demographic, the population began to change, the church stopped welcoming these new people into the church. This demographic change that happens in neighborhoods, if you have any bit of life experience, you know is not an unusual occurrence. Now, several years ago, and this is another thing that, that God did in this is another way God planted a vision for these impact campuses in my heart. Several years ago, before any of this started happening, I read a book from a man named Tom Rayner that was called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And he said at the time, two-thirds of all the churches in the United States of America were either plateaued in that they weren't growing or they were in decline. Think about the significance of that, friends. Think about the reality of what's going on in our country today from a social standpoint. Two-thirds of all the churches in the United States of America, this is several years ago, it's only been exacerbated by COVID and the things that have happened since COVID. Two-thirds of all the churches in the United States of America are either plateaued, they are not growing, or they are in decline. Now, one of the reasons why that was the case he wrote about in this book was the very thing that I just told you a moment ago about these impact campuses that are churches that we acquired in struggling neighborhoods. Churches stopped welcoming people into 
their body into their congregation. And, and we might think that that's the last thing that would ever happen in a church. But I'm telling you, this is something that happens all around us. And it's something that can slip up on any church if you're not careful. And so one of the simple takeaways that I had from that book, I remember writing this in the, in the inside cover of the book. Um, I wrote, I wrote this, this question that every church should ask themselves. And the question is, how well does your church, how well does our church reflect the neighborhood around it? Now for us here at Mount Pleasant in Greenwood, I think that we would have a great score or a great answer to that question because our church looks like the community that we live in. But if you were to ask that question in the Fairfax neighborhood or the Claremont neighborhood or even the Bethany neighborhood, the answer would be different. I'm not trying to be funny, but one of the reasons why we call the church the local church today is because it's supposed to be a place where locals, the locals are welcomed so that they can come, they can experience the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and they can worship and serve and on and on. But that doesn't happen when a local church is not a welcoming church. And while there can be a lot of different ways a local church can fail when it comes to welcoming anyone and everyone, starting with the people in their own neighborhood, one way identified in our text is this reality of favoritism. Remember, James chapter 2 and verse 1 begins with these words, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now, I know that all of us here are smart enough to have a good basic working definition of the meaning of the word favoritism. The word James uses in the original language of the New Testament, however, is a little bit more descriptive than what we might normally think about in our own minds because literally translated, that word means to raise someone's face, to raise someone's face. It's the idea of looking out and elevating one person over another based on some arbitrary reality of their life. And James gives us a good description of what that can look like on a practical level in verses two through four of James chapter two. Look at it again. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's a good description of this idea of to raise someone's face. We elevate someone who is attractive in appearance over someone who is shabby in appearance. And when something like that happens in church, that doesn't reflect the heart of God. In fact, it goes directly against the heart of God. It goes against this fundamental truth that all of us who belong to the local church and gather together as a part of the local church, do so for no other reason than the grace of God. That's it. The Apostle Paul makes that clear over and over again in his writings, probably the most well-known of which is the words that he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You can look at it on the screen when he says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And then he says, and this not from yourselves. It's not something that you earned, and it's not something that you deserved. He says it's the gift of God, not by works, not by human effort on any level. Why? So that no one can boast. 
And this principle or truth is not just related to favoritism given to someone because of their appearance, because there are so many different applications of this. There are so many different reasons why we can show favoritism to someone beyond their appearance. We can show favoritism sometimes because of someone's age, because we just prefer people that are a certain age, or we're, we're older and we're grouchy and we're cranky, and uh, we don't like younger people so much sometimes. None of us, none of us. We can show favoritism based on uh, affluence. We can show base, favoritism based on someone's achievement, the position that they have in life. We can show favoritism sometimes based on simple affinity. You know what I mean by that, right? We just, we just have an affinity to certain kind of people a lot of the times. People who have a similar background than us or people who have shared interests with us or on and on and on. But favoritism, regardless of how it's manifested, regardless of how or why it appears, is never in line with the will or the heart of God for any of us on our own and certainly for all of us together as the church. There's no room for favoritism in the church. I've said multiple times, that there's only one thing that all of us who are here have in common and everyone who's listening to me online, there's only one thing that all of us have in common and that's that we're not perfect, none of us. And another way to say that if we wanted to do it in biblical terms is that the only thing all of us have in common is that we're all sinners, every one of us. Now I've said before, you might be a spectacular sinner, you might be a boring sinner. You're probably somewhere in between, but it doesn't really matter because you're still a sinner. It doesn't matter for me because I'm still a sinner. But all of us, regardless of where we fall on the sinner scale from spectacular to boring, have been saved by the grace of God. We just saw that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And we saw that the grace of God is a gift. It's not something we could ever earn or deserve or claim to have merited some way in our own lives. And that truth alone should preclude any of us from ever being guilty of showing favoritism to anyone else when it comes to the church and the body of Christ. So let's just dive into that a little bit deeper real quickly by identifying two things from this text that we read in James chapter two. If you like to take notes, you can write down the first one. And this is really just kind of taking something we've already said and expanding on it because it needs to be expanded on. Number one, favoritism doesn't reflect the heart of God. Favoritism doesn't reflect the heart of God. One of the things that Tony Merida writes in his book, Love Your Church, is this. Never forget that God welcomed you when you were bankrupt, having nothing to offer. Christ cleansed you and clothed you with his beautiful garments of grace. This reality should impact the way, or rather how, you interact with others. You know, James alludes in our text in the end of our text, verses like eight and nine, he alludes to a familiar story in the gospels where one day an expert in the law asks Jesus this question of all the commandments, which one is the greatest? Do you remember that story? Of all the commandments, which is the greatest? And this is how Jesus replied. This is Matthew's version, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And, but Jesus expands on that. And he goes... And, a step further, he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. Then he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's just focus on that part of it. The verse 39 in Matthew chapter 22, these words, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if we really, honestly, if we really practice this command, it would do a lot for all of us when it came to welcoming others. So let me ask you a question. 
And it's going to sound a little bit odd, but I want you to really think about it. Give, it. give it some thought. Write it down somewhere, and maybe you have to reflect on it later in the day. How do you see yourself in relation to how God sees you? How do you think you see yourself today in relation to how God sees you? How do, how do I see myself? How do I feel about the reality of my life? And, I, and, and obviously I know everything there's to know about my life. I know all the good and I know all the bad and I know all the ugly for my life from the time I was a child old enough to really reason and be responsible. I know everywhere I've been and everything I've done and everything I've said and on. So how do I see myself related to how God sees me? One of the possible roadblocks to becoming a welcoming person and as a result, helping the church be a welcoming place is that we don't always see ourselves the way God does. And let me give you a little bit of insight into how God sees us. And this comes from the writings of the late Tim Keller in a book that he wrote called The Meaning of Marriage. But just because it was a book about marriage does not discount the application of this truth for all of us. He writes that one of the things we learn or we should learn from the gospel, and the gospel is just the good news. That's the word in the original language, euangelion. It means the good news. Uh, it was just a secular word that was taken by Christians to talk about the good news that Jesus came into the world to give us a new and a better life. So he says, one of the things that we learn from the gospel, this good news about Jesus, that your life can be changed, my life can be changed, is we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Is that the way you see yourself? In other words, if I were to put that in my own words, we're not nearly as good as we think we are and yet we are loved by God and loved by Jesus more than we could ever imagine. Now, why is it important for us to understand that reality about each of our lives? Because in the context of welcoming, not showing favoritism, being open to everyone, what tends to happen in our lives through the corrupting nature of sin is we don't really love our neighbors as we love ourselves as much as we love our neighbors who are like us. And so we've all failed in certain ways and areas when it comes to really genuinely loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Because there's people that we just simply ignore. And the result is we can be less loving and less welcoming to people who are different from us. But when we see ourselves through the lens of the gospel, we know that because we are, at the end of the day, regardless of what our resume may look like, we are no better than anyone else. We're also really no different than anyone else, even if their spectacular sin seems really different from our boring sin. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. Here's the second thing that we need to understand. 
favoritism doesn't reflect God's kingdom. Not only does it not reflect the heart of God, it doesn't reflect the kingdom of God. You don't have to really be a student of the Bible very long to understand that in God's kingdom, there's a sense that everything seems upside down. And what I mean by that is we, we read certain passages in the Bible, and from a worldly standpoint, they don't make sense. For example, and I, and I got a book. I'm fast, in fact, I, I, I searched and searched uh, because I have a lot of books in my, my office and a lot of shelves that cover, you know, one big wall and a portion of another wall. But I knew I had this book in there called Holy Contradictions that I probably had for over 40 years. I finally found it and I pulled it out this week and read a little bit of it and reminded myself, Holy Contradictions is the way this book describes this reality that so much of what happens in the kingdom of God seems upside down. Luke 153, for example, says, he has filled the hungry with good things but he has sent the rich away empty. So those who have nothing seem to be filled while those who have a lot, you know, in terms of purchasing power or buying power, they go away with nothing. That doesn't make sense. Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. What's that about? Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Can you find a financial counselor or advisor today and you go to them and you say, really, I want your help in building wealth. I want to build wealth. And they say, the first thing you need to do is give the wealth away. That doesn't make sense. Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What? Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. Forever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see what I'm saying? So much of God's kingdom seems to be upside down. Well, here's why we mention that. One of the things the Bible teaches us about the church, about this church, is that it should be a reflection of Jesus to the rest of the world. That means the church should reflect the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the world, the heart of God, not the heart of the world, the ways of God, not the ways of the world. And so we think of it like this, the church reflect the attitude of God, not the attitude of the world. And you see what that looks like. Again, in our text in James chapter two, this time verses five through seven, James says, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen? Everyone say chosen, chosen. This is deliberate on the part of God. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Well, what James is doing is he's just reminding us of this fundamental truth about God. His ways are different. And that's something that should be reflected in the church in a variety of ways. And so when a church is just like the rest of the world and we have these standards and you gotta meet these standards to be received and you gotta meet these standards to be welcomed, then something is dramatically wrong. We need to reflect this heart of God and the kingdom of God in every aspect of our church in a variety of different ways. And at the top of the list should be welcoming anyone and everyone equally without regard to their worldly wealth or their influence or lack of influence or their status or their lack of status or where they've been or what they've done, what they look like or what they know. And you know, as I look at this, this part of the text, verses five through seven, 
this might sound odd, but if there's one word that I would choose that I think is a key to understanding what James is trying to say, it's the very first word of verse five, where he just says, listen. He says, listen. Listen, my dear brothers. And that's what God is saying to us today. He's saying, listen. And the reason why that's the key word to me is because this word is not written as a warning. If it were written as a warning, it would read like this in the original language, listen. But that's not what it is. It's written with warmth. And it's written from the heart. It's listen. It's a word that's aimed at the heart and at the mind. It's a word that's spoken not just from the standpoint of truth, but also from the standpoint of love and affection. Both my grandsons spent the night in our house Friday night, and there was lots of, listen! <laughs> listen! Do what your grandmother says! But that's not what this is. This is, listen. Do you know how much your grandmother loves you? You know how much your grandmother wants you to enjoy this experience? That's the way it's written. So he didn't want to shout a word of warning to us. He wants to speak to our hearts. And he wants to say, listen. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Welcome everyone. Be that place. Tony Merida writes, if we will remember where we came from spiritually, we can be people of grace who show gratitude toward God and love toward others. Our proper response to the grace shown toward us in Christ is the extension of grace toward others, no matter who they are. So let me just end real quickly. I'm over time with some action steps and I'll do this quickly and the team can come and we'll close our service. Let me challenge you to spend some time this week reflecting on how graciously and loving Christ has welcomed you into his kingdom. Find some time this week. Maybe it's today, maybe it's not today, but sometime where you just stop and think about what, what God has done for you, how Christ has welcomed you into the kingdom. Number two, we all need to ask God to search our hearts for any pride or any prejudice that might keep us from being a genuinely welcoming person. And you know, the only thing you have to lose if you do that is sin. And that's not a bad thing. And then number three, this challenge to always be on the lookout for those who need to be welcomed, those who are by themselves. And I love this quote in the book about on this chapter on welcoming, being a welcoming church. And a lone person in any of our spiritual gatherings is an emergency. And we need to decide to be a missionary at church by introducing someone new to someone else and by not worshiping as a consumer who is watching the show, but as a minister who's eager to welcome and to bless. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for our time. Thank you for the truth of your word. I, I love this church so deeply, and I believe this church is in so many ways a wonderful, welcoming place, but we all 
can grow in this area. We all have uh, some blind spots and some effort that needs to be made. It's, it's hard because some of it is just feels like a natural response to different things, especially a natural response to people who can sometimes be so different from us. But help us to just see people from the heart of God, see people the way you saw us. Because at the end of the day, because none of us are perfect, we are really, in a very important sense, all the same. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 